are Kia ora kato, no mai ki things of interest. Ko Sofia toku ingoa, ko wairoa toku awa, ko moa toku monga, ko Dallam Tower te waka, ko Pakeha toku iwi no tōrunga ahau, ko Sandra rawa ko Keith o ko Matua, uh, and call Sophia Tokuingua. Um and welcome to Things of Interest, a very special episode where we're going to be talking about race and race relations, particularly looking at New Zealand. And that introduction for those of our overseas listeners uh, was in my somewhat okay Māori, I'm sure, um, but I am not talented at all at Māori and part of that is the way that we teach in New Zealand and the way our sort of education and our respect of the language is set up. Today with me, as usual, I have Serena Chen. Hello. That was beautiful, Sophia. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, and as a special guest, because I'm Pākehā, I'm white, and Serena is a Chinese New Zealander, we have uh, Marcel. Um, Marcel Farado is a teaching fellow in Te Pua Wanganga Ki Ao, the, facility, the faculty of Māori and Indigenous Studies. Uh, she was born and raised in Tauranga Moana, like me, and unlike me, uh, she has iwi affiliation to Ngāti Rangi Nui and Ngāti Rangi, among others. She studied at Otago uh, for five years and has worked there um, for a bit longer, I think again in the Faculty of uh, Māori Studies. Um, and she's passionate about all things Māori and tino ranga tiratanga, self-determination. <laughs> Marcel is fantastic, and I'm so glad we have you here. Yay! Yes. And better than that, Marcel has literally written the book on discrimination and social stigma that arises as a response to equity measures. That was like literally her master's, and it was incredible. So, Marcel, do you want to say a few words about your master's or yourself or whatever? Well, probably first I should mahi to you, Sophia, for your beautiful pipiha at the beginning. I didn't realize that we were going to be doing that, so... Um, I was I was like Sophia said, born and raised here in Tauranga, and I do have iwi affiliations to the two of the three iwi that call Tauranga Moana their home right now. But that was an awesome introduction. I thought you did really well in terms of pronunciation and everything. Thank you. I was. Yeah, I really feel like uh, sort of growing up, and certainly like I was a bit of an arrogant shit as a child about languages. Like we really missed out on really getting immersed in Māori, and so whenever I say anything, I freak out on the double level of speaking a language I'm not particularly comfortable in, but also the knowledge that if I fuck it up, uh, that's sort of contributing to the oppression that has existed for Māori people for like hundreds of years now. So... It's like extra pressure to not screw anything up. But thank you. I'm really, I'm really glad I did well. No, yeah, you did. I think that it might be something that a lot of people think about and struggle with. But it's just like any other thing that you practice. Mm. It's one of those things that's like a work in progress. You can't expect to be perfect straight away. You know? Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Oh, so what do we want to talk about? Masters. Yeah, you don't have to. I'm writing my thesis right now, so I understand the like pain that can be associated with it. But I absolutely, the bits of your master's I've read, I found fascinating. So I thought it would be a good starting point. No, it is a good starting point, especially because I want to publish out of it. So And it has taken me so long to look back at it, and every time I see spelling mistakes, etc. My master's topic, it came out of me being quite annoyed but also confused as to, you know, this whole rhetoric around the fact that Māori are perceived as being privileged citizens, um, that we are afforded special treatment just because 
we are Māori and so I would have people, my own friends, classmates, people that lived in my hall who would say, you are so lucky you're Māori. It's going to be so easy if you, for example, wanted to go into law or medicine. Not that I did, but it's so easy for you, obviously, because you're on scholarship, blah, 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 and all those kinds of things. And I would get quite angry about what they would say. So I wanted to look at where does, where do these ideas come from? Especially as young people, you know, thinking about going into tertiary education and the workforce in the wider world. So where do these ideas come from and how are they perpetuated? We hear all these kinds of conversations in the media. The media is a huge exponent of these ideas, but also our politicians, people who are supposed to kind of share the people's ideas with the rest of the country. And so, you know, we hear all these kinds of ideas every single, how often do we have elections? Three years. Every single three years, someone from the ACT Party will get up and say, we do not need special treatment for Māori. Of course, they most of the time pronounce Māori differently. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was what Basically, the question is about oh, my my masters, and it was something that flew by. Actually, it was you know when you're really passionate about understanding anything, kind of just flew by. The year just flew by. So that I guess was my masters. I was particularly interested in one of the findings, sort of in your masters, where you found particularly that you used the University of Otago as a case study and found like there definitely was sort of a social stigma against. Um, support networks for Māori students there but then you juxtapose that with the lack of negative stigma against things like Pacifica support like or lesser negative stigma against um, support for Pacifica students and I was wondering if you could comment a little bit more on that. Mm. I did kind of touch on that I guess especially towards the end because it is quite common that not to the same extent for um, Pacific Island students but there are many aspects of university life that cater to Pacific Island students needs so they do have for example at the University of Otago uh, Pacific Island Centre which um, is a student support service and they have targeted Pacific Island student scholarships and mentoring. So there are kind of the same sort of things put in place, but of course this is because of the reason that Pacific Island students don't um, feature equitably or proportionately in a tertiary environment setting. And so that is also half the case for Māori students who don't feature proportionately or equitably in a tertiary institution compared to um, the likes of non-Māori or predominantly Pākehā who do, who are represented equitably in tertiary education. And then so that would appear that there are no barriers for that group of students getting into tertiary study or higher education. And so, yeah, there wasn't, there isn't the same kind of stigma put on, put on Pacific Island students and the things that are in place to support their needs from getting into tertiary education, universities, or throughout that journey. But I guess the main thing that differentiates us from Pacific Island peoples is that we, as Māori, are the indigenous people of Aotearoa and as a result of that we also have a treaty which consolidates that partnership between the Crown and Māori. And so that's I guess what a lot of my thesis was looking at, the role that the treaty plays in this whole conversation and its significance. Sorry, I'm staying quite quiet about this because um, I think like many New Zealanders going through the public school system, our history just, it wasn't seen as a cool thing to learn and it wasn't 
that big a part of our education. And now that I'm in my 20s and I'm looking back and I'm like, wow, I really know nothing about this country's history. So it's it's just all really, really fascinating to hear. And mm. and only now, like, I'm starting to starting to read more about the history and more about the treaty. But I really should have done that at social studies in year 11. No, but that's the thing, because I even, if I'm being truly honest, I didn't know half of the things, most mm. of the things that I know now from university prior to that. So, like, Sophia and I went to the same school. We took a lot of the same subjects. Granted, she did incredibly better in, for example, languages and sciences than I did. I'm a nerd and had no friends. <laughs> you had a lot of friends. <laughs> and so from that, we didn't really... University, it was it was a place where mm. um, I really learned who I was as a Māori person. Coming away from, you know, moving down to Dunedin, understanding who I was as a person. But everything that is normal to you... It's not necessarily seen Mm. as something that's part of your culture because it's so normal to you. And so moving away to Dunedin and also doing more research and classes about the history of New Zealand, our people, tutoring and all that kind of stuff in the uh, Te Timu School of Māori and Pacific Studies. That was just really eye-opening because there's so many aspects of New Zealand's history prior to European arrival that is just hidden from wider society. And, I mean, there's many reasons for that. We could speculate. We could talk about mm. that it's easier than to control people who aren't aware of all of the injustices that had occurred as a result of the Crown wanting to come to New Zealand and, and basically make it a, a mini-Britain. But I guess a lot of those things, when you dwell on the past, you're not, you're not enabling yourself to be self-determining. And so it's really about understanding what happened, how can you better it in your circumstances and move forward into what is what we really want from the treaty and that is to be self-determining. That is not to be oppressed further as we have been for past 150 years and still continue to be to some extent. What made you want to study this at? university level that's kind of a funny story like I always went to university to do what I I I wanted to help people and I was always a good listener um so I was like yes psychology that seems like it's for me um little did I know psychology bless its soul um is not necessarily it was really confusing to me because we would do a lot of um case studies research into like American American psychology and a lot of the issues that are obviously affecting American people are similar to those that are affecting New Zealanders, but not necessarily the same. I think we have different dynamics and there's all these different things that need to be taken into consideration. Also because I didn't do well in psychology, but I was doing well in Māori studies. So every single paper that I took uh, through Tutumu, for some reason it just resonated with me. I guess because, like, I don't want to say it was easy, but it, it was one of those things that you could really relate to what you were learning about and further researching. Mm. So it wasn't like it was too much of a chore or too hard. It was something that was like a reality for me and my whanau and my family. And so um, a lot of the things that I did learn throughout that time was our history but it had not been given to Mm. us from my family or my parents or even my schools like I I look back and I think why 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 it isn't freely given you know like why do we have to take Elizabethan Elizabethan history in year 13 at our school 
when I wanted to learn more about what my ancestors were doing here and how they circumnavigated the globe a thousand years before Western technology was able to come to New Zealand. So why why weren't we learning about that awesome stuff? And, you know, people sometimes will say, well, it's not our history, like I'm not Māori, but it's the history of the place mm-hmm. that we live as well. Yeah, I know exploring and navigating a large piece of land is is hard and amazing and brave, but exploring and navigating islands around the Pacific Ocean just blows my mind. And it's such an awesome thing that like was never really talked about in high school. I remember when we studied the Treaty of Waitangi, it was always presented like, oh, it's just this thing that we have to do. You remember the dates, you remember what happened, and you sit an exam and that's cool, you pass. Like, it was never, no one ever emphasised the gravitas of, like, how important and how amazing these stories are to our land and where we live. And, ah, I wonder how we can bring that back. Because I do remember in high school being like, oh, I can't believe I have to learn this boring stuff, I don't care. But I would have cared if, if my teachers cared, you know? That's the thing, too, so... It really is always about the person sharing the knowledge with you. If they're passionate about it, if they see worth in it, then it'll be received differently as opposed to if they weren't as interested as they could have been. Or if they're just teaching something to teach it, to tick off a box and say, this is the part of the curriculum that I'm doing justice to, I'm doing my job. Like if I look back to it, I haven't really thought about it that much. Sometimes I do think about it, but a lot of... Uh, our schooling at college or high school it was very prescribed it was very face value but I guess also that's the nature of NCEA at this point as well there are certain things that students need to be taught at least from a government perspective or a curriculum perspective and I mean a lot of the things that we were learning did impact on New Zealand always they always impact on New Zealand as being a smaller country but there wasn't a lot I could relate to in year 13 history when Miss Armstrong's talking about um I don't know Henry VIII and how many wives he had (laughs) etc etc but if I could trace my lineage back to a place like because I have whakapapa um family connections back to people from France like my mum she's a Borel and so they're from France like if we were learning more about something that really impacted on me in an emotive way I think it would have made more of an impact and so just little things like that that I look back on and I think about and I'm just like yeah I guess that's why I didn't like school that much. (laughs) What's a part of our history that you wish more people in general knew about? Oh, that's a good question. Probably, if it's if I had to pick one thing, it would probably be that a Maori diet usually consisted of seafood, birds, kumara. That was kind of it was the only starchy vegetable, and aruhi. So that's like fern root, and they would preserve it, and it would be something that added to was part of their sugar diet. Basically, early ethnographers, when they first came to New Zealand, they would say that Māori were amongst the most physically astute, beautiful people or race that they had ever seen in their entire lives. And I think that's just fascinating to me because it's not something that's necessarily associated with us nowadays. And so you, you get to talking about like the effect that um, the introduced foods have had on Māori as a people, uh, as a group. 
and the, the foods that we typically are associated with nowadays, like hangi, boil up, all of those things contributed to where we are now in terms of like our physical and health and well-being. But I think that might be one thing. It's just that like we were amongst some of the most physically beautiful people in the world in terms of like muscle mass and like so little fat mass. It's just really amazing to me that like we could have survived for a thousand years on that kind of diet mm. and like we were doing okay. We were doing fine for a thousand years at least. I wonder if um a big part of that is that we have things like, I don't know, magazines and TV shows and movies now and that the whole world is exposed to a more like Eurocentric idea of beauty. Whereas maybe back then it's just like you weren't plastered and like pummeled with all these images of people um, who were labelled as beautiful by someone else. You just saw someone and you were like, hey, you're really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much technology has played into that as well. Yeah, probably more than we would want to believe. Marcel, did you study like Māori at school? Well, and. When I was in Tauranga Intermediate, when I went to Tauranga Intermediate, nice. I was in bilingual unit. Prior to that, I probably, the only experience with Te Ao Māori or the Māori world that I had was outside of school. So it would be with my whānau, my family, going to the marae and things like that. And then going into high school, because I had been in two years of bilingual unit, which is Māori and English, but we did all sorts of things all sorts of extracurricular activities which contributes to being able to be in that world as well. Like kabaka, um, or just a lot of kabaka really, <laughs> just a lot of waiata. And then at school, or at high school or college, I did uh, level one and two te reo Māori through correspondence because I wanted to do it in year nine and ten, but I didn't necessarily need to be doing year 9 and 10 to Reo Māori if that makes sense so there was a group of us who would just kind of congregate do correspondence, make it to the exams, do it, pass through but it was because it clashed with all the compulsory subjects that we had to do so after that I kind of got a little bit ho-ha, a little bit annoyed with it doing correspondence and picked up Spanish beautiful language but after that yeah I didn't have any I didn't necessarily do many things relating to the Māori world or uh, the Māori language until university yeah because um, I was gonna comment like you use a lot of Māori words just casually in conversation which is so cool and good because even if I don't necessarily know that exact word it's often very obvious from context clues and I think, like, I don't know necessarily if inclusion of Māori words in English is the best thing, but I think it does contribute to awareness and, like, maintenance of the language as a whole. And, like, I was just, like, I'm super into the fact that you do that. Like, I, it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of... When I, I was doing this internship with... He and his colleague received a whole lot of funding from Ngāpāi o Te Maramatanga. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but it's like Māori and Indigenous Research Excellence Institute. Um, they received a whole lot of funding to um, do projects for the revitalization of te reo Māori, and they had a whole lot of outputs 
out of the the project but when he he said yeah you can do this project with me and I want you to look into the revitalization of te reo Māori from a psychology perspective because at the time I was doing psychology so I had to do a little article about that and he's just like and I just have one question why don't you take any of the language papers through Te Tumu because all of the papers I was taking were like history culture papers and I just was like um yeah I don't know why don't I and I guess up until that point, I really was of the the, the thought that I didn't need te reo Māori to be Māori. I am Māori. But it was just something, I guess, and it, it came down to being uncomfortable about uh, learning te reo Māori or just putting myself out there that way. And so what I did the following year is I enrolled in... Um, Tarareo Māori Level 4 at Te Wānango Aotearoa in Dunedin. And from there, I've just constantly been learning Te Reo Māori. Level 4 was bilingual, oh, yeah, bilingual and we worked ourselves up to being total immersion in like August of that year. And then the following year, it was two nights a week, full immersion, three hours a night. And after that, we also did... I did Te Putaketanga, which is kind of a step down, but it was all that was offered in Dunedin. So it has been kind of like a constant thing in my life for, I would say, the past four years. And so I do try to use kupu Māori, Māori words, quite often. Because sometimes also it's for my own, um, I don't want to say laziness, but sometimes there's just words that I can't express in English sometimes. And so the Māori words just, it just is easier to say it because it means so much more than just like one word translation yeah absolutely um i know i was reading uh, about takatapui recently mm. which is sort of sort of the maori word for being part of the lgbtq community but also mm. describes the journey to an extent from what i understand and is sort of much more encompassing than just saying like part of that community or calling yourself queer or anything like that and uh, is it uh, Dr. Liz Carrere, I think, has been working on it? And I was just reading some of her work and it was so cool. Uh, but I think, that's, I think that's a really good example of just like where a word in one language can encompass much more of an experience. And I think like a lot of Māori words have that advantage over like English words, which can often be very narrow in their definitions. Yeah, I have been seeing a lot of, um, I think, yeah, it is Liz is it Liz Kere, Kere? Um, who's doing research into Takatapui. And also I just see a lot of my friends put up um, heaps of things on Facebook about Takatapui and the stories around Takatapui. So my understanding, I don't know much about it and I'm probably incorrect, but Takatapui is, I think, yeah, the word given to um, someone who is not part of what you would call, I don't know, like, male or female so it's not necessarily like an extra gender but it was something that was quite common in pre-European Māori society and I think I was I saw something about that view has only changed since the influence of missionaries early missionaries and so takatapui was quite common in pre-European Māori society and um, accepted to a larger extent so like for example are you guys familiar with um, the Māori love story Hinemo and Tutanekai? Uh, I am, yeah. Oh, you'd have to tell it to me. 
Well, basically what it is, is in Rotorua, Tarawa, they have a story about, it's a love story about Tutanekai was, or well, in some versions, a man, but also of a lesser, lesser down in the hierarchy. So he wasn't as high as Hinemoa, she was a princess, a puhi. And they fell in love with each other. And because Hinemoa was a princess, she uh, wasn't, she was forbade from seeing him. And so what they did, well, her people did, her father's people did, was put Tutanekai on Makoya Island, which is the island in the middle of Rotorua, Lake Rotorua, and he would play his kōauo, which is kind of like a flute, and that would signal to her his love for her. And so one night um, she put gourds underneath her arms and she swam over to Makoya. And so that's basically one version of the story. But there's also other stories which talk about the fact that Tutanekai also had a male lover that his name is honestly, it's left my brain right now. But it was one of those things that was, the story that I had heard was quite accepted, that he also had like a best friend for who was also more than his friend. And so a lot of those types of stories were quite common in pre-European Māori society. Some people have speculated or suggested that it was only because of the influence that missionaries had on Māori, early missionaries, that 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 way of life was slowly less common, became less common. Gosh. So I am not a big history buff, but I have been reading more and more especially after uni. And the one theme that always keeps popping up, the more I learn about world history, as well as our own, is just how damaging colonization really was. Like, I knew for so long that it was, like, it was horrible and there were genocides committed all around the world in different countries. But it's aspects of culture like that that also get erased that just really seals the deal of how destructive it was for so many different people. Mm, yeah. And I don't know, I'm just I'm just so sad thinking about like what we've lost in terms of culture and different, you know, acceptances for different new ideas, old ideas. These are old ideas. Yeah. And it's just it's mind-blowing. It is quite when you think about it. Interestingly harmful the way that colonization, the impact it does have and continues to have on us today. Like, you know, people always talk about the beginning of colonization was, I don't know, 1840, because that's when the treaty was signed. But colonization is still happening now. The impact that a larger majority has on lesser majority groups of people is still occurring now. And that's just how power works power struggles, privilege, and the strange thing about that is that it's invisible. So a certain way of life is so normal, it's the status quo, everything outside of that is like, well, no, that's not, that's different, that's too, too, too different for me, yeah. Or that it's weird, that's what some people say, yeah. I've been thinking a lot lately about colonisation, and like, I'm... Chinese New Zealander, I'm an immigrant, so I don't come from a place that's directly been colonised. But I've been thinking a lot about kind of this modern colonisation and how it's affected my life since my family has moved to New Zealand. I mean, thinking back on it, it's it's kind of fucked up, because when 
I first came to New Zealand, I mean, the first thing you notice is that, oh, wow, pretty much everyone I see is white. They all look different from me, and they all look different in this way. And I remember when I was little, my parents would send me to um, Chinese language classes, so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't lose my language. And I hated those classes. Like, I would refuse to go. I'd cry, I'd scream, throw a tantrum. Because as a child, I don't know how I learned this, but I learned that Chinese culture was not cool in New Zealand. Mm. It was not a thing that was respected, that was admired. Uh, European culture was a thing that was cool, that was to be respected, to be admired, to aim for. Well, um, British culture, because I, I very vividly remember going to like a sleepover and seeing my big fat Greek wedding and going, wait, hold on, not everyone knows not what moussaka is. <laughs> like, what do you even eat? <laughs> yeah, yeah, specifically, specifically British culture. And what really amazes me about that whole situation was that I was a child. I was a child. I, no one was telling me, hey, this thing is better than your culture. No one was telling me that the British way of doing things, seeing things, of living was inherently better. In fact, my parents tried very, very hard to keep as much of our history and our culture and our language as possible. Uh, and yet I still slouched in, into the, uh, the pressures around me. And mm. when I arrived here as an immigrant, like at five or six, I could speak two different dialects mm. in Chinese. So that's Mandarin and Cantonese. And within about a year, I just completely forgotten Cantonese. It wasn't just the lack of exposure. It was because I stopped speaking my own languages um mm. like when my parents would go shopping at pack and save and my mum would speak to me in mandarin i would reply back in english because there was some shame around a language that wasn't english and it's ridiculous to think about it now now that i'm a grown human and i kind of understand the uh the complexities around it but as a child like that <laughs> Fucked me up, man. <laughs> yeah. Are you, like, do you feel a certain way towards society for that? Mostly, I'm, st I think I'm still in a place where I'm unpacking all of this. Mm. Um, I'm still trying to unpack my identity, who I am, my different, like, amalgamation of cultures now, mm. uh, what China and its history means to me because at my point it means very little to me because I spent so little time there but it means so much to my parents so like how do I how does that all fit into my identity and I wish I had a coherent feeling towards society in general <laughs> about the kind of fucked up things that I experienced um, as a as a child but I really don't I'm still in a place where I'm trying to unpack what everything means and I'm still in a place where I'm trying to find out or recreate even um, what it means to be a Chinese New Zealander. Mm. No, it's all very confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sophia, can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. So some students came up to me this year and was like, what is Pakia culture? So like, what is New Zealand European culture? And we were just talking about it. And of course I was just like, I don't know because mm. I don't identify as as Pākehā, or, or even though I most definitely probably somewhere back 
have connections to um, non-Māori groups or ethnicities. But what do you think um, New Zealand European culture is? Oh, I'm still working this out, but I'm I'm really interested in the concept of New Zealand European culture as a thing, because I think it's possibly an example of a dominant culture that can only exist with reference to Maori culture. So I think Pākehā culture are things like, you know, learning your mihi in primary school, like having the experience of existing adjacent to Māori culture, yet somehow still, like, being the dominant one, the majority Mm. one. Um, And, like, that's definitely a definition of a subset of Pākehā culture. Like, obviously, there are, like, Pākehā who are farmers and, like, Roger Hall plays and think that people talk about the Treaty of Waitangi too much. Like, that is also a New Zealand-European experience, and it describes a lot of New Zealand-Europeans. But at its essence, like, being Pākehā means having some greenstone around your neck when you leave New Zealand. It means talking about having a kōrero. It means, like, getting really excited in Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori because you know that there's going to be some, like, really cool media come out and some like some neat things are going to change. Uh, I think like that's definitely the Pākehā experience of our generation, mm. um, and I think that's just like that's very much a generational thing where younger people tend to be more left wing, tend to be more open than older people, and like it's sort of my hope almost that that will become mainstream Pākehā culture is having that respect, that reverence for Māori culture, and by having that, hopefully, sort of shift the balance of cultural power almost where like while Pākehā culture will probably remain being the dominant culture just because there's so many white people by paying proper respect to the fact that like our culture necessarily draws from Māori culture that will hopefully shift the balance so that Māori culture can like have more self-determination and be respected more in New Zealand as a whole yeah but I'm still working it out I just think, like, there probably very much is, like, a specific New Zealand-European culture. And I've thought that more, like, since moving overseas. Like, living in Australia, it's very clear to me that there is a specific cultural experience for New Zealand-Europeans. But I'm still trying to figure out what that is and why that yeah. is. I guess I just asked, wondered that, because that's a very unique perspective. I've never come across that perspective. Because if you would say that... If you can say that um, Pākehā culture is sort of something that has grown out of or in connection to Māori culture, then it would be mutual. It would be the same. A lot of things within Te Ao Māori, within the Māori world now, have been fused with um, Western or Pākehā ideologies. So, I mean, culture is always going to do that. It's always going to evolve. And so, so many things about Māori culture have been fused with Pākehā culture. So many things. And without even realising as well. I mean, um, religion and uh, the word escapes me in Māori, but like prayers would be the most obvious one. Karakia, yeah. Yeah, especially religion. But it was, yeah, definitely the impact that um, religion had early on. Because it all came about because, or not came about, but... When 
more and more migrants were coming or settlers were coming to New Zealand, Māori were dying at such vast rates because of the introduced diseases, sexually transmitted diseases, um, measles, mumps, uh, what else, tuberculosis, so many um, foreign diseases that Māori had not been immune to because they had been isolated for a thousand years. And part of the reason why religion was so attractive to Māori was because missionaries said that if you uh, if you are saved and if you have the word of God, you will not die. And so an aspect of why Māori converted to Christianity and other types of main denominations was because because of that, because they were afraid of dying from all these introduced diseases that, that were killing Māori at huge rates, devastating numbers. That has in some case, in like some way, morphed into a lot of aspects of, of Māori culture. Yeah, so it's kind of tricky to understand what was present prior to European arrival as well. I really like doing these because I feel like I always learn something new out of every conversation. Yeah, you would. And it's fun to talk with friends. Yay! Didn't you want to talk about like the normalisation of te reo Māori? We touched on it. Do you want to expand on that a little bit about the importance or how we're moving forward with that or if we're not? Yeah, I guess I was thinking about it over the past couple of days just in gearing up for this podcast and the conversation that has been going through the media and whatnot over the past at least year, well, it's increased, is probably um, compulsory te reo Māori in schools. And that I think is very tricky. And it, it actually really pains me to say it, but sometimes in this instance I think I would agree with the likes of like Paula Bennett just on this one thing, that I think making something compulsory, even though we don't realise that, for example, English is compulsory, in mainstream education until year 12. But I guess from someone who's who's spent so much of my 20s, at least up until now, um, really passionate and hungry for the opportunity, just the opportunity to learn te reo Māori, that I think it would be beautiful if it was compulsory. But then I question, I would question would it still mean that much to people if they didn't have to go through the realization that it's something that they would that they can grow to love like if it's just something that's normal for them would it mean as much to them as it mm. as it does to to the likes of myself and other people who are uh, currently on their te reo Māori journeys so that was the only probably the only thing um, that I was thinking about about this idea of making te reo Māori compulsory but I but nonetheless I I do think that you know at least pronouncing Māori place names is a big thing for me because even in Tauranga we have so many Māori place <laughs> names and they are just butchered I mean, like if I listen to the radio sometimes, one of the words that I that I and my family we constantly mispronounce is um, Otumoitai. It's a little suburb in Tauranga that our whole lives we grew up pronouncing like Otumoitai. And I was talking to my cousins yesterday, and they're like, "Yeah, we never thought about it like that." <laughs> But um, sometimes it really is the mispronunciation of Māori place names are just so ingrained in your mind that it's just, it's almost really yuck to say it properly. Yeah, I remember, um, I think it was maybe a couple of years ago, 
there was um, a radio presenter on Radio Hauraki um, who pronounced the name correctly, and he got in a lot of trouble for it. <laughs> like, the producers of the radio station were like, no, it's Hauraki. Oh, right, yeah. That's our brand. They are, eh? Yeah. Hauraki FM. Yeah, and it's like, what's happening here? Yeah. No, that was That was bizarre. That was such a weird thing. One of my worst experiences is trying to explain to Australians where I'm from, and they go, oh, Turonga. And it's like, oh, you're so close, and yet you're absolutely not close at all. <laughs> points for trying, but not many points. <laughs> where are you based in Aussie? I'm in Melbourne. Melbourne. Because oh, yeah, there's a zoo in, is it just out of Sydney maybe, called Taronga Zoo? It is. Yeah, and then I remember it my... Is. And they always seem to go to that. My auntie went there when I was a kid. I think when it comes to like compulsory Maori language education, as a child, I absolutely would have had to be forced to learn Maori properly. And as an adult, like I really regret not having learned it to a yeah. much higher level. But I think when you talk about valuing Maori, so I learned piano from when I was about five years old. And I hated it until I was maybe 16, mm. at which point I realized that it was incredibly like cool and fun and just I really loved playing the piano and having that ability to play music. And it's a slightly forced analogy maybe, but I feel like if Māori education was compulsory, potentially kids wouldn't appreciate it while they were going through it. But the fact that they would have – at least a base level of skill that when they hit that realization, maybe in their teens, maybe in their early twenties, maybe later in life, they have like a base level of skill to fall back on that they developed in early childhood. And of course there's like all the benefits for learning languages as a five year old that exist as well, that are all like very well documented, like really well known. <laughs> yeah. And I think like those two factors put me in favor, favor of it. Yeah, I certainly regret not learning as much tetra as I could have in primary school. And now it's like, if you look at signing up for a class in Wellington, the classes are full, so gotta wait, <laughs> gotta wait for next semester. But yeah, it's definitely something that I wish was forced upon me as a child. Yeah. But I guess, you know, that's, that's all hindsight. Mm. Do you um, still speak Cantonese and Mandarin? No, so I've I've forgotten Cantonese, but I still speak very rudimentary Mandarin. I've just signed up for um some Mandarin lessons. I'm gonna have my first one this weekend, which I'm I'm very excited for. But yeah, the the little that I do speak is, if you could imagine like how a a five year old might speak English, it's it's not great. <laughs> oh, but that's a lot because you can fully have a conversation. I'm going to, you know, I'm going back to classes. Just can't get any grammar right. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did a similar thing. So I grew up in uh, Lebanon for a few years, where the main ling languages are Arabic and French. And when I moved back, I made a huge fuss about going to Arabic lessons. And as a result, I speak very poor Arabic now. <laughs> but French is like, it's a cool language. It's a, you know, it's the good part of Europe kind of language. Um, and so I like I took it at high school, and I can still speak quite a lot of French. And I think there's that very like Anglo-centric, Eurocentric basis to how we perceive things as being like cool or good. All right. Uh, well, thank you, everyone. Mihi korua, mihi koto mo fakarongo, um, and thank you, uh, Serena and Marcel, for being part of this. 
fabulous conversation about sort of race, um, te reo Māori and Māori in New Zealand. This has maybe been like my favourite episode to record, <laughs> despite yeah. the fact I talked a lot less, uh, which is probably something I could get into the habit of doing. As usual, uh, if you like us, uh, feel free to leave us a review and some stars on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook at Things of Interest. You can find us on Twitter at Casting Interest, and you can email us at Casting Interest. Is it Casting Interest, Serena? Yes, Casting Interest at gmail.com. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Marcel, do you have anything you want to plug? Not so much plug, but probably just me to you both for inviting me on here and. Like I said, I was surprised how fast that was. It was, it was really fun. It was really cool. So, tēnā kōrua. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, tēnā kōrua. And as always, everyone out there, stay interesting.